morning's passage is 5 through 9. We are continuing our series through the book of Ephesians called One in Christ. And I just want to take a moment before we really get into the sermon this morning to to set the context for us a little bit, to remind us where we are in the book. We're getting close to the end of Ephesians, and we really just have one or two more sections after this. But our passage today, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, is the conclusion of a pretty large chunk of text that starts back in chapter 5, verse 15. Look back at a page, chapter 5, verse 15, where Paul says, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. This is really the heading for the next several paragraphs in Ephesians that we've been looking at. And, and what Paul says is, is, walk in wisdom because the days are evil. That, that's, that's what he's calling us to do in this section of the book, is, is to walk wisely, to, to redeem the time, because the time is short. Because we live in a world that is still in active rebellion against God. Christ is coming back, and we have the gospel. And so let's walk wisely and make the best use of the time in this world. And what's surprising is, and a million things that we could do with our time in this world, what does Paul focus in on as we go forward? Well, he focuses on corporate worship. That's one way to make the best use of the time, to gather with God's people, to sing with them, to hear the word, to to be with each other. And then he focuses on marriage, on wives and husbands, and how we are to live out that relationship. And he focuses on parenting, children and parents, and and the relationship there. So, So... What's, what's the best way to use the time? Well, it's not that extraordinary. It's, it's living quietly with your church family, with your family, with your, with your marriage. And, and then the, the last section, what we're in today, is a unique household relationship that existed in the time of the New Testament uh, between slaves and masters, bond servants and masters, in verses 5 through 9. And Paul is going to address this relationship as well as as a context in which we should make the best use of the time, walk wisely, because the days are evil. Now when I say the word slave, just, just, just saying that in our day and age, I think just increases our level of discomfort a little bit. Right? We, we, we know slavery is wrong. We're familiar, even with our own country's history and the stain of slavery on our history, we know the institution of slavery is evil. And, and yet, let's just look at the passage for a moment and see what Paul says. He says, bondservants, or, or slaves, literally, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. This this passage has a lot of good instruction for us, but, but it can be difficult to get past the very first word. Again, in most translations, it will say slaves. We know slavery is wrong, yet here Paul is instructing slaves to obey their masters. He's instructing masters on how to treat their slaves, and, and, and it creates a tension in our hearts. Now, maybe you're here this morning, and you're not personally that bothered by that tension. But what answer do you give to an unbeliever who comes to you and points to passages like this, and then says, the Bible is pro-slavery? I could never believe 
in Jesus because, because the, the scriptures are pro-slavery. What do you say back? This is actually a very common accusation that's being made today to undermine the gospel and undermine the authority of scripture. And, and so before we can get into the passage, whether this is something that is more for you personally and, and, and wanting to know what is the answer to this or just to, to help equip you as you discuss this with unbelievers, I, I want to just address this head on from a larger biblical perspective, and then we'll narrow in again on Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, and what Paul says uh, to the Ephesian church. And so what we're going to do this morning is, is answer three questions. Three questions. First, big question, does the Bible approve of the institution of slavery? Does the Bible approve of the institution of slavery? Second question, how does Paul approach the issue? And third, how do his instructions apply to us today? So does the Bible approve of slavery? Second, how does Paul approach the issue? And third, how do we apply these instructions to our lives today? And so first, again, big question, big picture question, does the Bible approve of the institution of slavery? You know, there's not a verse in Scripture that calls for the abolition of slavery. It's not a verse in Scripture that says, thou shalt not have slaves. And because of that, that, that's why this can be a debated issue. Historically, it has been a debated issue. However, the Bible does speak to this issue in a variety of ways. It, as you search the scriptures, it makes a cumulative argument. And, and this morning, what I want to do is, is, is look at this head on. And just, you know, when I was in seminary, I had to read a, uh, two papers, two positions on slavery. Uh, they were from the 1850s here in the South, two pastors, one arguing from Scripture for slavery, one arguing from Scripture against slavery. And the reality is that if we start with what we want the answer to be, then we can use Scripture however we want to try to get there. We can cite Scripture, we can twist Scripture, we can, we can make it seem like Scripture supports our view. And both those pastors were using Scripture but only one was using Scripture rightly. We don't want to start with a moral presupposition and then make Scripture fit into it. We want to know this is what Scripture teaches. And here's what I want to say this morning is we, culture, our culture is aligned that slavery is evil. I don't want us to believe that because the culture tells us it's true. We want to believe that because Scripture tells us. We want to be convinced from the Bible that slavery is wrong. And so that's, that's what I hope to do right now, is convince you from Scripture that, that the Bible does not approve of slavery. But, but we need to look at it closely and, and see the cumulative argument that it makes. And so, really, there's several perspectives to bring into this. And, and where I want to start is just ask you to consider the Exodus story. I think this is overlooked um, in, in a lot of discussions about this. But to me, there might be no better place to start in understanding uh, what God thinks of slavery than the Exodus story. Just think about it. God's people, Israel, were enslaved in Egypt. And if there was, I mean, this thing about slavery on a spectrum, this was the harshest form of slavery, wasn't it? They, they, they were subjected. They were mistreated. They were abused. They were killed. They, they, they were forced into hard labor as a people underneath a more powerful people. And what did they do? They cried out to God. For deliverance. They cried out to God for justice. They cried out to God for salvation. 
And the Lord says in Exodus that he has heard the groaning of his people in slavery. He has heard their cry. And what does God do? He sends a deliverer to them. He rescues them out of slavery. He rescues them into freedom. And he judges the nation that enslaved them. Now, the story of Exodus is, it teaches us a lot more than just what God thinks about slavery. But we should not act like it doesn't teach us about slavery. It's, it's much bigger than that, but let's not sell it short. This story, I believe, shows God's heart on this issue. It's not like Israel was just hanging out in Egypt and God rescued them. No, they were enslaved, crying out for justice, and God heard them. He heard their cry, and he rescued them out of it. And, and throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you see refrains, especially in the Psalms, you see these refrains from Israel saying that God is the rescuer of the oppressed, the rescuer of those who are low, the rescuer of those who are enslaved. God rescues those who are enslaved, and he judges those who enslave. We see that from the Exodus. Now, I don't understand, I don't know why in his providence God allows slavery and has allowed slavery to exist throughout the centuries in so many cultures Apart from an intervention like that, some, we know in Israel's case, his people, he rescued them. But I believe still that this story shows us God's heart on the matter. God was not unwilling to save his people, to hear their cries, but he saw that they were suffering in this slavery. And he, he delivered them out of it, and he judged Egypt. And so I think this, this is a good place to start for us, to understand that, that this very foundational story in Scripture in itself represents God's heart on the issue of slavery, to rescue those who are oppressed, to judge those who enslave. Well, what surprises us, I think, from that point on, is then we, we go to Sinai, and Israel receives the Old Covenant, and we might expect one of the commandments to be, Thou shalt not have slaves. But that's not what we get in the Mosaic Law. In the Mosaic Law, in the Old Covenant Law, we actually get laws that specifically regulate slavery. And the logic that some have goes, well, if the law is regulating slavery, then it must approve of slavery implicitly. But that's not true. That is, that is not the way we should understand the fact that there are laws that regulate slavery. And, and so I want you to follow me here. This may be the... the, the the most squirrely part of things, all right? So, so we're going to try to trace some of this through here. We need to understand the purpose of the law first. What was the purpose of the Mosaic Law? Galatians 4 tells us that the law was in, instituted temporarily to expose evil and to restrain evil and to preserve Israel as a people until the Messiah would come. That was the purpose of the law in the Old Testament. It, it, it was to identify Israel as a people, to separate them from the nations, to expose their sin, and to restrain them from more evil. And in this sense, the laws that regulate slavery recognize the evil of slavery. The fact that there are laws regulating it show that, that the Bible understands slavery is evil and is restraining that evil. And so that's, that's one thread on how we understand those laws in the Old Covenant. But I also want to address this idea that because it permits it, it must approve it. That's not true. Because the law permits it does not mean that God approves it. And I think we see this most clearly on a separate issue. And, and so I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. The Pharisees are testing Jesus. 
and they're trying to trap him, and they ask if it's lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause. And so Jesus responds to this by, by pointing back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and saying that God created a male and female and he joins them together and they are made for a lifelong covenant union. What we saw in marriage, let, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That's Jesus' answer when they say, can, can, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And then look at verse 7. Verse 7 from Matthew 19. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So they think they're trapping him here. So we, we, we got him. Why, why, why then did Moses say divorce was okay? Look what Jesus says, verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. This is really crucial principle for us to understand here. I'm going to uh, read a commentator on this. Certain Old Testament commandments were to be understood as concessions to the hardness of the human heart rather than as expressions of God's holy character. Very important to understand this. Certain Old Testament commandments were to be understood as concessions to the hardness of the human heart rather than as expressions of God's holy character. Because the Old Covenant speaks of divorce and regulates divorce to some extent, does that mean that God approves of it? No. No, we know what God thinks of marriage from Genesis chapter 1 to Jesus said, in the beginning it was not so. In the beginning, here was God's design. It's because of your hardness of heart that Moses allowed this, permitted this, and regulated it and restrained it from being more evil. And so the question that we face is, can we say the same thing about slavery? Can we make that jump to slavery? And I think we can because just like with marriage, we can look back to the beginning. We can look back to the beginning and we can ask, what was God's initial design? What was God's initial plan before the fall, before sin? We think about Genesis 1 and 2. What, what was God's design? Well, God created everything, and then he created as the pinnacle man and woman in his image, humankind, in his likeness. And he gave them the command to have dominion over the earth, over the rest of creation, and to subdue it, and to cultivate it, and to, and to use it. And, and so we have this doctrine of the sanctity of human life built into Genesis 1, that all humans are created equal in the image of God. Every human life is sacred. No human life is more in the image of God than another. And we also see this calling that all humans are called to have dominion over the earth, but no human's called to have that sort of dominion over another human. It's not to deny that God built in authority structures in this world, but, but, but this type of dominion is, is to use and to subdue for one's own purposes. And, and, and that, is, that is nowhere to be found in Genesis 1. All people are equal before the Lord. No one is to have dominion over another person in that way. And these chapters tell us what God's design was. And, and, and when, when you take the cumulative effect of all of this, the, the Exodus story, the, the, what's going on in, in, in the Mosaic Law and the, and the restraining of the evil of slavery, the, the, the doctrine of creation and sanctity of human life and the calling of dominion over the, all these things together bring us to the point of saying that the Bible does not approve of slavery. The Bible does not approve of slavery. There's no, there's no way you can hold all of these strands together and then say, but God approves of one person owning as property another person for their own good. 
Nowhere in scripture can we see that that is approved. Permitted, restrained, yes, but approved, no. And so there are challenges for sure in, in, in what scripture says on this issue, but, but I think when we, what I want you to see is that as you read the whole Bible, because it's one thing to take a verse here, take a verse there, and then, and then create an argument like a Southern Baptist pastor would do in the, in the 1850s to say, God supports it, see, verse here, verse here. But then to, to read the whole Bible and to, and to put it all together and to say, what is it teaching all held together? We can unequivocally say, no, this, this, is, this is not reflect the heart of God. This does not reflect the will of God in creation. This does not please God. So then, leaves us with another challenging question. If that's true, then the second question how does Paul approach the institution of slavery? And back to Ephesians 6 here. Why does Paul not call for the abolition of slaves? Or, or even, maybe a, a more nuanced way to put it is, why, why doesn't he even ask Christian masters to free their slaves? I mean, at, at least you would expect that, right? Why doesn't he do that? Well, this is, this is where context is very important, church, to understand. So, so everything we just said about, about slavery and about God's heart and about, about creation all stands. It's all true. It's all, it's all there. And yet here we see Paul instructing slaves and masters the way he does. And we wonder, why wouldn't he say, masters, free your slaves? And, and part of the answer is that the form of slavery that was practiced in the New Testament era in the Roman Empire was much less like maybe what we think of when we think of slavery in, in the United States, and, and much more in terms of indentured servitude. You guys know that, right? Indentured servitude. Uh, here, here's what is true about slaves in the Roman Empire. Most voluntarily entered slavery. They did it for a set period of time. It was not indefinite. They were doing it voluntarily to gain a better life for themselves, either, either to come under the purview of someone that had more resources and, and, and could provide for them, or in some cases to become a Roman citizen. The slave was not based on race. It was not based on any sort of distinction along those lines. The slave was still recognized legally as a person, not as property. Within this particular context, the most important human rights issue, so to speak, was how the slave was actually treated by their master during their slavery. But the institution itself was, was very distinct from Israel's slavery under Egypt or the slavery that we uh, are accustomed to think of in our day and age. And so I think this is one reason why Paul does not uh, call masters to free their slaves. It, it, was, it was a distinct and, and fairly complex institution that was part and parcel of the, of the Roman Empire, and in many cases it was, it was for the advantage of the slave, and they entered into it on their own, voluntarily. Now, I'm not going to say that answers every question, but, but that being said, I think that the more significant reality for why did Paul not call for its abolition, or why did Paul not say masters for your slaves, is, is this, that Paul's priority was not the transformation of the culture. Listen, Paul's priority was not the transformation of the culture. Paul's priority was the exaltation of Christ. We see this in Ephesians. Paul did not believe that the calling of Christians is to transform and change and Christianize the world. Paul focused on the worship of God in chapter 1. 
Paul focused on the transformation of the individual. Think about it. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. You were dead, and God made you alive. He called you out of walking in sin to walking in good works. The transformation of individuals by the grace of God. And then those individuals, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, what happens then? They become part of a transformed community of people. Ephesians 2, 11 and following. The church, God's new people, reconciled together in one new body. Transformed individuals becoming a transformed community of people that are then called to live as a Christ-exalting counterculture. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Don't walk as the Gentiles do any longer. It's, it's a counterculture of people that exalts Christ and points beyond itself to the coming kingdom of God. This is Paul's focus, is, is the church being salt and light in a world that is dying, and in a world that is lost, and in a world that is evil, that the church points to Christ and points to his coming kingdom. Just in our, in our passage here, notice the emphasis on Christ. Just four verses, five verses, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bond servant or free. Master, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. Over and over and over again, He's saying, as for Christ, thinking of Christ, looking to Christ for the sake of Christ. That's what Paul's focused on. Paul's focused on this community of transformed individuals who have been called to be a church in the world, living for the exaltation of Christ as slaves and as masters. Creating a picture of who Christ is, showing through the way that they operate that Christ is worthy, that Christ is king. That Christ is Savior. And that this teaches us something, church. This teaches us in, in, a, in a time where, and I include myself in this, we are so tempted to be drawn into the world and what is happening in the world and what's going to happen in the world. We're so tempted to be anxious about the direction our country is heading. We're so tempted to... to to, to, to just get consumed with social media, consumed with the news, consumed with, with all that's going on, our focus should be the exaltation of Christ in our lives. Our focus should not be on the world. We live in the world. We're called to be lights to the world, called to be salt in this world. By God's grace, he has in different times and places, such as the issue of slavery, used the church to, to bring revival and to bring, um, to bring morality to a, to a different place in the world, but that is not our focus. Our focus is on individuals being transformed so that a church can be a counterculture that points beyond the world, because one day, America will be gone, and the kingdom of Christ will be forever. And we know that, church. We know this. This is our hope. Our hope is not our country. Our hope is Christ's kingdom. And so we should focus on him just as we say, Lord, haste the day when our faith shall be sight, and then live now to exalt him in this world so that more and more people can be a part of that coming kingdom.
This is Paul's priority. And I believe it's why we don't see him working as a first priority at, at transforming the culture. Because he understands that, that the culture will always be evil at some level until Christ returns. But Christ is coming, and those who repent will be saved. And the church can show him through the, the way they live. And, and so, with all that said, is this passage for us still? Does this passage teach us anything? How does this passage apply to us today? That's the third question. How does instructions to slaves and masters apply to us today? By God's grace, we don't live in a day and age when we are enslaved and when we are part of this institution. But that doesn't mean these words don't apply to us today. Paul's instructions to slaves apply to all those who work under the authority of another. All right? So if you have a boss, then Paul's instructions can apply to you. If you work for someone, Paul's instructions can apply to you. Students, if you have a teacher, maybe she's your mom. All these instructions apply to you. Look what he says. He says, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. As you would Christ. Here's the application for you. If someone's over you in authority, obey those in authority over you as you would obey Christ himself. Obey those in authority over you as you would obey Christ himself. Now, for some of you, that is quite the exercise in imagination. Because <laughs> you don't have good bosses. Peter says the same thing. He says, not just to the good and gentle, but to the unjust. Obey those in authority over you as you would Christ himself. And then he describes what that looks like with fear and trembling. We fear and tremble before Christ, but do we fear and tremble before there's an authority over us in our workplace. His, his point is to reverence and respect that authority. It's a, it's, it's a God-instituted authority in your life. God has done it this way. It says, with a sincere heart, that, 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 that you genuinely enter into the service of those in authority over you. It says, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, as in, you're not just doing the bare minimum for them to think that you're doing a good job. You don't just, you don't just work hard when they're watching you. But you, you work hard all the time. You, you, you seek to work excellently. Doing the will of God from the heart. You're doing it for God. You're doing, it, you're doing His will in your work. You're rendering service with a good will. You, you are seeking to bless those in authority over you. You're seeking to do good to those in authority over you. Because this is how you would obey Christ. And so, so when you have that boss that, that you think, I could do a better job than they are. Think to yourself, when they give you an instruction, I need to receive that as if Christ just gave me that instruction. I need to respond to that as if Christ, because it is for his sake. This is what this instruction is calling me to do, to, to live for his sake, to, to get beyond the person in front of me and think of Christ as my master in heaven and obey him in this moment. Now, Paul's instructions to masters similarly apply to all those who work in authority over another. Maybe you are the boss. You have people under you. Look at what he says. Masters, do the same to them. Do the same to them. What a radical thing to say in the first place. Slaves do this. Masters, do the same as your slaves are doing. But, but his point is not, masters, obey your slaves. He's not, he's not subverting that order. I think what he's, what he's getting at is, is all the ways that, that slaves are to enter in. He says, just like he says to, to do good, 
do the will of God, render service to the good will. As for Christ, he's saying, Masters, take on that same mentality of, of doing it for Christ's sake. So, so the instruction is, treat those under your authority as Christ himself would treat them. You want your authority to be a reflection of what his authority would be like if he were in your shoes. What, what would your workplace be if Christ was the boss? And you want to seek to image that and to, and to live that. You're not, you're not going to be threatening. You need to stop your threatening because Christ would not operate as a threatening Lord over his people. He would come and, and be gentle and humble and serve and encourage and help and correct and come alongside and listen. This is the way that Christ would be. And he says, Masters, treat those under your authority the way that Christ would. And then he gives them both reminders. Look at verse 8, knowing that. And then the end of verse 9, knowing that. See, two times he says, do this knowing something. You need to know something if you're going to do this. What do we need to know? And this applies to both slaves and masters, bond servants and free. This applies to everyone in every situation that we're talking about here. It says, first, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. And then verse 9, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. So what Paul does is, is, no matter what authority structures exist here and now, we are all equally under the authority of Jesus. He is the true Lord. He is the true master of every one of us. He will judge wrongdoing, and he will reward good. And that's the perspective we take in our work. Whether you're a slave or master, whether you're working for someone or working over someone, he will reward the good. He will hold accountable the wrong. There's no partiality based on who you are, what your position is in this life. He is our master, and he's in heaven now, and he's coming again. Again, he's coming. His kingdom is coming. This, this, this is the huge, true reality that's over our lives. We, we get so sucked into life here and now that we can see, we forget that Christ is king, and he's coming, and we're living for him. And he's going to reward the good. Maybe the, your, your boss does not see the good, but Christ does, and he will reward it. And he sees the wrong, too, and he will hold you accountable. So we live before the face of God. We live before Christ. We live knowing that he sees, and he will respond. And church, we've covered a lot of territory today, I know. This could have been three sermons. But to try to bring it together, I, I, I want to try to bring what we've seen in, into, into one singular idea as we close. Now, some of you know that I have become enamored with the show Shark Tank. Um, I actually saw a, a sponsored ad on my Facebook this week. Uh, they, they're trying to figure me out. Uh, they said, Christian business entrepreneurs. And uh, I know I'm a pastor. They know I watch Shark Tank. They're trying to figure me out. But I love Shark Tank. If you don't know the show, there's people trying to sell products and get, get an investment in their product from really rich people. And uh, the rich people try to evaluate and see, you know, is, am I going to get my money back on this investment? And they give them advice. And, and so a common problem with these products, sometimes you see a great product. It's an awesome product. And it's like, man, I want one of those. And, and then they don't get an investment. And here's why. Because the sharks say, you're, you're trying to do too much. They're all over the place. They're trying to sell here and sell there. They're trying to create this product and this product. And their focus is just all over the map. 
They say, you're trying to do too much. You're not, you're not going to make it. You know what? They never do. Those people never do make it because they're, they're so spread thin and they don't, know, they don't know what their focus should be. Well, here's the thing, church. We live, as Paul said, in evil days. The days are evil. The time is short. We have limited time and we need to be laser focused with the time we have. We need to be focused on what really matters. The world is unstable. We know that. No one has to convince you that. The world is an unstable place. The world is an increasingly evil place. People are going from bad to worse, just like Paul said in Timothy. In a world that is often unstable and increasingly evil, we need to live with this singular focus to exalt Christ until he comes. That is our role, church. No one else will do that if we don't do that. No one else will proclaim the gospel if we don't proclaim the gospel. No one else will point to his kingdom if we don't proclaim his kingdom. This is God's calling on us as a church in the world until he comes to live exalting him. And so don't be consumed with this world. And don't fight for your rights in this world. Understand that this world is passing. Christ's kingdom is coming. He will reward the good we do and focus yourself on exalting him in every single calling that he's given you in your life. Let's pray and then we'll sing together to just respond to his word.